The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. We are live from London and Zurich this morning ahead of Credit Suisse's highly charged annual general meeting. And these are your headlines. Will it be curtains for the board of Credit Suisse? The Swiss bank's leadership prepares to face shareholders in its first-person AGM in four years and likely its last as an independent lender. The Dow climbs more than 300 points to kick off Q2 as Wall Street looks to brush aside fears the surprise OPEC class output cut could once again lead to a pickup in inflation. The Reserve Bank of Australia holds rates at 3.6%, with the board pointing to considerable uncertainty in the current economic environment, but leaving the door open to resuming its hiking cycle. Donald Trump, the first U.S. president to face criminal charges, arrives in New York ahead of his arraignment. That's the reading of the charges over alleged hush money payments with Manhattan police on high alert for protests. A natural fit? L'Oreal acquires Australian luxury brand Aesop in a $2.5 billion deal as the French cosmetics giant expands its place in the high-end natural goods market. So, very good morning, everybody, and here we are again, yet another pivotal moment in the tragicomedy that is Credit Suisse and the Swiss banking system at the moment. So, let's focus on what exactly we're going to learn at this AGM today. Credit Suisse's board are set to face investors in person for the first time in four years today. It's a gathering expected to become a significant flashpoint for anger over its emergency rescue by rival UBS last month. Now, just six months ago, uh, the lender launched its plan to create a, quote, more focused and more stable bank. I was there. I spoke with Axel Lehman. I spoke with Ulrich Kerner. We heard all about the master plan to turn around this business, the second significant restructuring plan in two years. But here we are. Creditor controversy, prosecutor probe, boardroom bad feeling. Now the bank has collapsed, its 81 bondholders have been wiped out and the Swiss prosecutor has opened this investigation into the deal, looking to effectively all of the parties that brought this deal together. Well, the board has made two key changes to today's agenda. It will no longer ask shareholders to release it from liability for the bank's 2022 financial results after advisers told investors to vote against the proposal, which could have left members open to legal action. Also gone, a proposal asking investors whether executives should receive a more than 30 million Swiss franc bonus for completing their restructuring plan.
Still on the agenda, though, shareholders will be asked to re-elect each member of the board, but key shareholders have made it clear that time is up for many. Well, Jamana has uh, made it to the AGM this morning. Um, Jamana, good to see you outside the building there, and I'm very much looking forward to your coverage throughout the day here. Probably a little early for some of those shareholders to turn up, but you getting any sense of what the early mood looks like there? Well, let me just set the scene for the viewers who are watching, because uh, for once we're not standing outside a bank, we're actually standing outside a hockey stadium. And the entrance is right behind me. It can accommodate up to 15,000 people. We're not expecting 15,000 people to show up, but certainly hundreds, if not a small uh, number of thousands of people might be showing up a little bit later. Uh, as you say, not quite yet. Uh, the doors open at 8 a.m. local time, so at about an hour's time, and the AGM doesn't kick off until about 10.30. So there's still a couple of hours for people to, stump, to start coming in. And I think you encapsulated the mood quite well in what you were saying before linking out to me. And the mood is very much one of frustration at its best and anger at its very worst from a lot of the shareholders uh, who are now being given the opportunity to, for the first time, speak to the Swiss bank leadership since that deal was announced a little bit, a little bit over two weeks ago. And now remember, Many of these shareholders are sitting on millions, if not billions, of losses. As we know, at Saudi National Bank, for example, the largest shareholder in Credit Suisse, sitting on a loss of more than $1 billion since they participated in that restructuring plan that you spoke about, Jeff, uh, towards the end of the year. And it's not just Saudi National Bank, of course, uh, but other investors are very keen to get their word out too. The likes of Norges Investment Bank, again, one of the top 10 shareholders in Credit Suisse, going out formally saying on the tapes that they would be not be looking to vote in support of an extension, a renomination of the chairman Axel Lehmer to the Axel Lehman to his position. And so lots of shareholders are coming together today. It is an opportunity for them to vent uh, the frustration that they see at the mishandling of uh, Credit Suisse, the management plans, the restructuring plan that wasn't able to be seen through, and uh, essentially the token price that many of these shareholders would have received for what they thought were stocks that were valued a lot more. Not just shareholders as well. We need to talk about other stakeholders too. The 81 bondholders won't be present at the AGM, obviously, but many of them are sitting on a huge amount of losses given the full write-down of the principal that they had to take as a consequence of the takeover deal as well. You talk about the employees of UBS and Credit Suisse. A newspaper report, a local newspaper of the weekend, suggesting that as many as 30,000 jobs will be cut as a consequence of this deal, 11,000 in Switzerland alone. So there's a lot of fear about what this takeover means for the local jobs market. And then finally, if you think about the context of the broader public, well, an opinion poll just over uh, the last week showed that three quarters of the Swiss public are actually against the creation of this monster bank, they're calling the combination of UBS and Credit Suisse. Now, the Swiss parliament is going to sit down between the days of April 11 and April 13 to go over the deal and, of course, uh, analyze uh, what took them to make such a hasty decision uh, in terms of pricing and in terms of that FINMA decision to write down the 81 debt. But 
I think it is an understatement to say that the backdrop to this AGM today is certainly very, very charged, both from the shareholders, all of the stakeholders, the Swiss public, and many people want to, and want to get answers as to how we ended up in the state and how a bank that has been around for over 160 years ended up in this fashion. Jamana, let me pick up on the backdrop. It is uh, quite uh, interesting imagery that it is a hockey stadium. You think about all the defensive kit that the players typically wear when they go out to play a hockey match, from the padding in the shirts to the helmets, the mouth guards, the padding on the shins, uh, you know, the gloves, very thick gloves. It sort of sets an image, doesn't it, for a management and board team that have just been about to be battered by hockey sticks and a puck, uh, effectively, as they take the questions. There is no real point to today's AGM, is there, except to, to be a sounding board for those very irate shareholders and bondholders. I think that's precisely it, Karen. And actually, just to, to, to draw out your analogy a little bit longer, Stefan, our cameraman, was telling me that this uh, hockey stadium is actually now defunct. So I don't know if that's a signal of, of something to come with respect to the AGM. But, but, but to your point, I, I agree. It is the first opportunity for any of these shareholders to speak to management directly. Remember, both UBS and Credit Suisse shareholders were not given a vote on the deal. So this is their chance to speak about it. But in terms of what it's actually going to achieve while well, debatable, unless they consider going down a legal route. And we know that some shareholders are actually considering that avenue. Uh, there is a class action lawsuit being put together by US shareholders of Credit Suisse. Uh, this actually was announced before the takeover deal was put together a couple of weeks ago. But then this class action lawsuit was about um, alleged uh, inflating uh, of Credit Suisse's business prospects uh, with respect to those 2022 financial statements. So that's one potential lawsuit that we could be hearing about. We know that 81 bondholders are also lobbying together to, 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 go, to get, go down the legal route as well. Whether or not that's going to yield any outcome, we don't know. Uh, I do want to say, though, that I'm going to be speaking to the CEO of Ethos Foundation, that is Vincent Kaufman, in a couple of hours, and they represent a, a bunch of Swiss pension funds, so an aggregate uh, account for about 4 to 5% of the stakeholding in both UBS and Credit Suisse. So a really interesting voice to be listening to because also we're going to get not just obviously the institutional view on what uh, today, what's going to happen out of today and what they're expecting, but also how the domestic bondholders and, and, and shareholders are thinking about the deal itself and whether they're actually going to give faith in this new entity, especially now that we know that the uh, UBS CEO, Sergio Armotti, is coming back to run the whole unit. So watch out for that interview. Terrific. Jamana, thank you very much indeed for that. And having been to one of these things, Karen, I remember I was there for Tijan Tiam. Um, security was quite important, right. as I recall, and I would imagine today that they will be spending quite a chunk just to make sure that this thing is properly policed and properly uh, controlled because you you are going to get some angry shareholders turning up today. Or maybe that's why the hockey stadium is, if you think about some of the protective covering Absolutely. that uh, is there between the, the stadium and the, the ice skating rink typically. Absolutely. <laughs> and let's uh, take a look at the US markets. There certainly wasn't a quiet start to the second quarter. We had the news flow early on about these OPEC plus cuts to targets on outputs and uh, that meant we saw a very rapid increase in the spot price on oil. Energy stocks were on the mood 
if you take a look at the Dow as a result, uh, bounce of near on 1%. Uh, we've seen effectively four straight sessions of gains, a fourth positive session also for the S&P, but breaking as some of that winning streak for the Nasdaq, peeling back and sliding as it broke a three-day winning streak. But investors very much focused on what those cuts to output could mean for the price of oil from here and how that will feed through into inflation. All this as we've been getting some weak signals anyway on the manufacturing side out of the United States. The numbers showing us that in March, activity slumped to its lowest level in nearly three years as orders fell. So the market weighing up very rapidly and it was just a step away from some of those tech names. Don't forget Tesla also fell on the back of data on its deliveries for March. What we saw though across on those US energy majors was a fairly significant rally reflecting the spike that we saw in the spot price in WTI and Brent. You can see 5.9% up on ExxonMobil. Hess Corporation up 8.4%. Conico Phillips up more than 9%. And you can see very strong gains too for the likes of Phillips uh, Occidental up 4.4% and Chevron. So all moving to the upside. Let's take another check on WTI and Brent in the morning trade. You can see it's uh, 8081, the level on WTI, marching north by half of a percent. Similar size pop again on the gains for Brent. That is now traveling just above $85. Lots of commentary around $95, $100 being the handle that we could see prices at some of the short-term forecasts. The Asian market's picking up on that, and you can see how it plays out across the region. Hong Kong is a weaker market today, down 1%. The Japanese stock market traveling higher, modestly north, and the big one has been Australia, where the RBA has kept interest rates on hold. Now, the opening calls across Europe today are a little bit mixed. We are chasing slight green on the FTSE 100 to the CAC. Not a huge amount of it, as you can see, uh, barely four points at this stage, but uh, slightly weaker on the Zetra DAX and on the Italian market. It was slightly choppy across the block yesterday. We saw the FTSE perched high thanks to that oil story as the oil majors all bounced, but uh, the German index falling because of the impact on some of those industrial manufacturing facilities with the uh, higher end price now again back inside Jeff terrific Karen thank you very much indeed for that well the S&P 500 ended up 7% for the first quarter that you all know uh, despite the bout of market volatility triggered by SVB and financial sector concerns but did you realize how narrow the gains were the number crunchers here at CNBC using FactSec data have basically shown that the S&P 500's gains in the first three months of the year were down to just five stocks, Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Tesla and Meta, all of which contributed 29 points to the overall gains on the index. Scott Cronut joins us, U.S. equity strategist and global head of ETF research at Citi. Scott, good morning to you. It might seem churlish uh, the day after we put on 300 points on the Dow to focus on this this narrowness and this concentration. But how alarmed or concerned should investors be at the moment that the market does seem to be lacking breadth and we saw that narrowness in the first quarter for the S&P gains? Well, I think we've seen a series of rotations through the, through the year so far that's been led by this mega cap growth cohort that obviously was last year's a leader to the downside. So the mean reversion higher, as you've seen interest rates taper off here, is not a big surprise after the fact. What I would say, though, is that if you look at the S&P 500 itself, as you move through the 4100 level, in our view, you begin to run into a little bit of a valuation issue. Our fair value model for the S&P puts a 
high end around eight and a half, 18 and a half times. Right now we're, uh, we're approaching 19 times. So we don't think there's that much room left on the valuation side. And then uh, in addition to that, we think that there's probably some fundamental pressures still to come to bear as we work through the second quarter and, and into the second half of the year. Yes, yesterday's move w was a little bit head scratching given that it came as the market got an opportunity to react to the OPEC oil output cut. And yet we did see Treasury yields fall on that. Was it effectively just a knee jerk on the decline in yields or was there something else going on, do you think? Hard to get granular on that. What I would say, though, is that if you look at the way the market's now pricing in Fed action from here, um, house view is that the Fed funds rate is going to go to a level perhaps approaching five and a half percent. But market anticipation right now is for Fed funds to you know really fall as much as 100 basis points in the second half of the year. My point there is that what happens is that when you see a new um, piece of data, like in this case, oil prices creep in higher than previously had been modeled by uh, the sector itself, you begin to, to reinforce that view that the Fed's going to have to maintain a, a more hawkish stance longer. Market's not quite ready for that. And that's how I think you get a read through that essentially says, okay, tighter Fed for longer increases recession risk. So, Scott, can I ask you about some of the volatility? Clearly, we picked up around some of those banking contagion fears, but we've dropped back off again uh, below the 20-odd level on the VIX. What does it say about some of the risks that the market sees, despite all the complex items we've just been discussing, from the oil price to banking contagion into the economy? Well, I think there's, there's a dynamic under the surface here in the U.S. where, again, you had the, the banking issue surface what, three, four weeks ago now, uh, that led to a real quick spike in volatility and a lot of hedging as a result of that. As now you've begun to see volatility measures move lower, some of that hedging is proving offsides and then becomes another source of buying power to uh, kind of fuel the last few days rally. Um, I, I think at this point, though, you've essentially round-tripped volatility. Um, and it, in our view, becomes one more element of a headwind that we think that the U.S. markets can face as we move through the second quarter. Scott, one of the fears as we were sort of settling on some of the dust around the banking contagion story was that we could be in territory of greater policy risk now for the Fed, that uh, it's very difficult to call what's taking place with some of the credit tightening, what we're seeing in some of the data and the manufacturing numbers yesterday showing us there was a big fall in new orders. What do you make of just that softening we're seeing at the same time while inflation could remain sticky? Yeah, really good point. So since the middle part of last year, we've been looking for a first half of this year recession or recession effect, if you will. Our economists are uh, more of the view that a recession condition is more of a second half. In either event, we think we begin to feel it now, which you're seeing, as you point out, in some of the uh, some of the, the manufacturing data, which is giving you readings that are typically a, a leading indicator of what you'd expect going into a recession. So we think that issue is front and center. The way we're navigating it, quite simply, is that we think that uh, S&P 500 earnings will not be as bad as feared relative to a recession circumstance. That said, there are still some yellow flags on the horizon where we think that um, earnings expectations are going to continue to come in. Um, and the areas that kind of come into this discussion would include um, margin pressure, you then throw in top the uh, increase in, in, in lending conditions 
uh, essentially a tightening there that continues to per permeate its way through uh, as a pretty important lead indicator for weakening economic activity and earnings. The net of this is that um, while the banking system is working through its issues under the surface, the conditions have been deteriorating already. And again, this is why we would kind of, you know, at this point say, okay, great, we've had a pretty good move. It's explainable from a couple of different angles, resilient earnings, falling interest rates. But from here, the risk reward skews a little bit more to the negative in our view. And Scott, more short term, we've got non-farm payrolls out. Uh, it's a holiday shortened week with Easter as well. How big a, a risk event is this going to be for markets? Well, it's the next issue to come up. I mean, I, I think that it'll be widely anticipated. Um, I think it'll be a factor um, in terms of the, the Fed's next um, meeting expectation. But, you know, I'd, I'd say given that we are about to enter the Q1 reporting period, and in my view, that's probably going to be as if not more important in terms of setting the tone uh, for management commentary about how the second half is going to shape up. Again, the rally on the back of a lower interest rate and a perception of a Fed change in direction as we move through the second half of the year is pretty clear. What I don't think the market's really fully prepared for at this point is for a further deterioration in earnings expectations while we're still navigating um, the next steps for the Fed, if you will. Scott, so that takes us to talking about what kind of recession we're going to have here. And I think the remarkable thing uh, is just how well the jobs market has held up here, whether it's labor hoarding or something else. We're going to get a look at the jolts today. That'll give us a bit more information here. But if we have a short and shallow recession, maybe a lot of equity investors will just hang on. Is there any prospect that it could turn out to be a lot worse than that? Um, well, I think there's always that prospect. We are placing our highest probability in a mild recession. And so we're given that like a 65% chance. We do hold out a 20% a chance that there's a more severe recession out there. And that's where the Fed continues down a very hawkish path, even as economic activity is showing very clear signs of deteriorating. We're not there yet, but that's what we're on the watch for. In a mild recession, again, we think that what, what, what you have to expect is under the surface uh, is a rolling sector response to this from a fundamental perspective. What this can do is take some of the pressure off of the way the market would, and would typically respond to recessionary circumstance. Doesn't mean it's not gonna be an issue, it will be an issue, but we think that the, uh, the US equity market's opportunity to show resilience around this will actually be um, in some ways sort of a, a positive surprise versus others that I think have been a little bit more negative in terms of a, of a recessionary outcome for the U.S. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Scott. Really good to catch up with you and get your opinion. Scott Cronut, U.S. equity strategist and global head of ETF research at Citi. Uh, still to come on the program, so the Australian bank has now joined the club of those deciding to pause. But could more rate hikes still be out there? Something we'll talk about when we come back. And for more on Credit Suisse's AGM, as well as the latest market action, you can check out the Scorebox podcast.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. The Reserve Bank of Australia has decided to keep its policy rate at 3.6%, taking a pause to assess the impact of its previous 10 straight hikes. The RBA warned further monetary tightening may be required as the labour market remains tight, but says it believes inflation has likely peaked. Analyst expectations were split on whether the central bank would leave its interest rate unchanged after Australian consumer prices fell to an eight-month low in February. Just to pick up on that inflation number, 6.8% where inflation was tracking in February, the 12 months to February, down from the level in January that was 7.4%. So some a direction that uh, the central bank is certainly seeing in terms of inflation that is welcome. That said, they are concerned about the lag effect, and this is something we speak about quite a lot on the show. What point we see catch up, and the central bank still thinking that there is some catch up here after 10 rate hikes, that at some point it will catch on. You're seeing impact across and how the consumer responds at some point on the demand story. And don't forget, there's already been an issue around some of the, the property prices in Australia. So you have seen concerns for homeowners paying more for their mortgage. And don't forget, Australia is often geared around variable mortgages. It was only, I think, a, lot of, a bit of a scramble for some of those homeowners to get on board fixed rates. But typically, there's a marketplace where you do just track the, the, the variable, the standard rate. So I think there are concerns for the central bank about over-tightening at this point. And yet, even as we say all of that, re-acceleration of the property market in Sydney, uh, apparent, uh, as people look at the opportunity of a modest pullback in prices or at least buyer interest to pick up trophy properties, the, the labour market looks reasonably tight still. Uh, and some of the forward economic indicators are not bad for Australia. So thinking your way through this, with the inflation number you just presented, that is nowhere near the 2% target <laughs> here. <laughs> it was very high-pitched. So what's going on? Because if it's about the data and if it's about the battle to fight inflation, then they should have hiked, surely. And I know the market was kind of shifting, but it was ambiguous, you know, it was in the balance, this decision here. So ultimately, have they blinked because they're now starting to see some, some deeper impact on these interest rate moves than actually we're picking up in the data so far? Because we always assume that the central bank has better information than we do. Well, 10 consecutive hikes is something that is uh, very unusual, particularly for this crop of uh, homeowners not used to that series of rate hikes. I remember back in the day, there was about eight in a row that I had when I first bought a house, and that was fairly extraordinary. This is more in terms of the tightening. Uh, in terms of one of the other factors that we have mentioned, banking contagion fears. Those bank fears, I think, have reached all the 
the way to Australia. It was something the governor picked up on today. You think about the last time there was a, a banking crisis. You saw a lot of the international banks pull back from their exposure in Australia being you know, much further away than many of their home bases. As that tightening of credit took place in home markets, it meant some of that credit tightened to Australia. Some of these smaller lenders, you think about the, the um, absolute determination to protect regional and small banks in the United States. The reality is that a lot of those smaller lenders in Australia were wiped out last financial crisis. You saw uh, in, uh, inability to keep many of those smaller players going, which meant concentration of the four major banks. So I think at this point, the central bank is a little bit concerned about what happens if this uh, banking fear uh, does tighten credit and impacts some of those lenders uh, more broadly than what we've seen already in the United States and in Europe. So um, that leads us neatly into the ECB and you, you look at this story from the ECB and you're like, okay, um, but we knew this, didn't we? And we've seen situations, uh, let me read the story and then maybe we can talk about it. The ECB has called for greater regulation for commercial property funds, warning they are exposed to a liquidity mismatch if investors look to withdraw their money at short notice. The central bank has cited the limits Blackstone has recently imposed on one of its property funds as well as the restrictions put in place by UK property funds after last year's chaotic mini-budget. Blackstone has continued to be hit by withdrawal requests with investors looking to take out $4.5 billion from a real estate fund in March. This is the fifth straight month the group has limited redemptions. Unkindly, you could say that this is a little bit like your drug dealer telling you that cold turkey is going to be bad. I mean, really? You know, we're now only hearing warnings from the central banks about the, not only the risks of a withdrawal of liquidity, but the reality that I think I mean, if you are in one of these funds and you did not understand the issue of investing in a product which is priced daily and allows you to go in and out on a daily basis, but has assets within it that can be sold ultimately only over weeks and months, then, you know, if you didn't understand what this product was, then you shouldn't be allowed out on your own effectively you should have someone hold your hand when you cross the road because you need to look inside the product and understand ultimately what it is and there was very clearly a liquidity mismatch in these products and the recent issue post the UK budget is not the first time we've seen gating of investors money in these kind of CRE products so, you know, wake up and smell the coffee here. Great that the ECB is raising a red flag on this stuff, but hopefully anybody that's got money in these products should understand what they let themselves in for by investing in them. It does beg the question, what is the time frame for withdrawals? Though? What should that uh, time frame be on the gate opening and closing or when you can get in and out of one of these funds? I mean, you think about your own property investments. It is very hard to get out of a home, for instance, in a short space of time. It's a, it's a quarterly plus story, isn't it? So well, even talking... in good markets, <laughs> right? it takes forever. Exactly. So in bad markets where the price is falling rapidly and you're resistant to sell and you can't find a buyer, it could take 
a very long time, right. years. And we're, you know, the paperwork takes a certain amount, as you say, finding the right buy even longer. So big yeah. question as to what the central bank decides in terms of that, the ready time frame that supposedly stops this mismatch in liquidity, that the timing issue. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.